Welcome to the Historias Podcast. I'm your host, Foster Chamberlain. I'm particularly excited about this episode because it contributes to one of the podcast goals of considering Iberian history in the broadest possible sense, and it forms the third part of our series on the Nazis' role in that history. Specifically, we turn to the subject of resistance to and collaboration with Nazi occupiers during the Second World War in the French Basque Country. To discuss this topic, I'm joined by Sandra Ott, Director of Graduate Studies at the Center for Basque Studies and Interim Chair of Communication Studies at the University of Nevada, Reno. We'll be taking a look at some of the case studies in her recent book, Living with the Enemy, German Occupation, Collaboration, and Resistance in the Western Pyrenees, 1940-1948. So, Sandra, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for asking me to join you. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So I thought we could start out by getting into just a bit of the geographical and historical background before we dive into just a couple of the case studies that are in your book. You know, some of our listeners might not have realized that there are Basque people that live in France as well as uh, Spain. So what is the geographical area where they're concentrated and what is the physical geography there like? Yeah, the French Basque Country is located in southwestern France, and there are three provinces that uh, extend inland from the Basque Coast, which uh, is mo- most noted for Biarritz and also Bayonne on the Basque Coast. And uh, I did my fieldwork in the most mountainous of the inner Basque provinces called Chibaroa in that dialect of Basque. Um, and the it's, it's very rural. Uh, once you go inland, uh, the landscape is dotted with Basque farmhouses and sheep and cattle, and it, they're the foothills of the Pyrenees. And when you get to the far eastern end of the French Basque country, where I work mainly, uh, it's quite. It starts to get more mountainous as you're heading towards the higher Pyrenees. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful part of the country. It does rain a lot. It's very green, um, but the 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 mountain passage uh, was, of course, an important border during the war uh, and during the Spanish Civil War as well. And um, perhaps we'll talk about that a little bit in in due course. Yeah, sure. So I know that by training you're an anthropologist and specifically an ethnographer. So could you just characterize for us a few of kind of the core values of the uh, Basque people in that region? Sure. Um, Well, I lived uh, for over a year in the first instance with a Basque farming and shepherding family uh, in the French Basque country. So I have firsthand understanding of of what's important to them in terms of their their rituals, the practices, and their values. And there is, uh, traditionally, there was a very strong emphasis on cooperation between both between neighbors and among members of a, of a Basque farmhouse, trust, uh, respect. Um, there's a very pronounced hard work ethic. But the main emphasis is on cooperation and mutual aid, helping each other and really getting getting along and working toward a common good, whether it's for the house itself or the neighborhood or the community. And of course, those values are severely challenged in times of foreign occupation and war. Right. So we're going to look at a few of those tensions uh, in the episode today. So I thought the the other piece of background that we might want to establish is 
I'm sure most of our listeners know that southern France was ruled by puppet regime of, of the Nazis Vichy after the French surrendered to the Germans in June 1940, but this this border region that we're talking about, what was its status during the, the German occupation? The border region uh, is a, a very complicated one. It's complicated by being such a multicultural, multilinguistic zone. The, it had a, played a very important role not only in the First World War, uh, a lot of French Basques went to the other side of the, of the Pyrenees wanting to avoid conscription in the, uh, by the French military. Uh, of course, with the Spanish Civil War, there was a huge influx of Spanish Republicans into that part of southwestern France. Uh, it's a porous border, um, and it was a highly dangerous one as well. When the line, line of demarcation was drawn between occupied France and, and so-called Vichy France, uh, the line of demarcation divided the French Basque provinces. So the westernmost uh, French Basque province of, of Labourde, Lapurdi, was fell under G German occupation straight away. So they had a heavy German military presence right from June 1940. In the inland provinces, which fell under the Vichy, there was, of course, the G there were Germans around, even though it was, Vichy was supposedly in charge. Mm -hmm. um, but the borderland was one that concerned the Germans greatly because they wanted to they they didn't have the, the manpower to to enforce border controls and the Pyrenees are hard to navigate if you don't know what you're doing. Um, so it was a great source of concern for the Germans and uh, it was a major escape route for uh, Allied pilots. French men conscripted for the German uh, obligatory work service and also of course Jews. And in the area in which I work it came under German occupation in November, November, December of 1942, and that's when there was certainly a, a much greater German presence along the border. And there were always German patrols, and my family would say, you know, they, re they, they, they remembered seeing the German patrols coming up to the farmhouse, and if they hid, as they often did, uh, refugees, uh, Jews, Allied pilots, and STO evaders. Mm -hmm. um, it was highly dangerous um, because the, Jew, the the Germans were looking precisely for those people, and if if you helped those people, you were certain to be arrested and probably deported, if not killed. And some of them were killed helping these people. Yeah, it, it's amazing the bravery of those who did uh, shelter some of these people. But you can see the interest of the Germans in this region as kind of their last chance to capture people who might have been fleeing the regime. Absolutely. <laughs> so the, the last piece of background that I thought we might establish is to talk a little bit about um, what happens when the Germans withdrew from the region in the fall of 1944 and the Free French quickly set up tribunals to try people for collaborating with the uh, with the occupation regime. So we're going to be looking at a couple of the cases in the podcast and what they reveal about collaboration. But I thought maybe you could tell us a little bit about these tribunals and how you use them as sources. Um, I worked in classified archives in Po, and the trial dossiers uh, that I have mainly used in my, my new book were often you know, 90, 120 documents. And the dossiers are complicated. Fellow historians say to me often, how on earth do you ever find the story in these documents? Because yeah. you're reading testimonies of witnesses for and against the accused, 
police reports, observations from passersby, sometimes their letters. So there's a whole range of information that you have to sift through carefully. Mm -hmm. And finding the story was often very difficult. And you've read the book, you know that sometimes the stories are pretty messy (laughs) and complicated. And I was particularly interested in not only how these people were being judged by their fellow citizens, but also how how these cases were handled in the courts. The court didn't get up and running until October of 1944. And, you know, the first cases that were heard show that, that there was not consistent jurisprudence. One finds that these dossiers are full of human folly, intrigue, duplicity, vengeance, sex. And sometimes there are some funny things that happen, but most often it's about ambiguity and and the complexity of these times, both during the occupation and during the post-liberation years. Yeah, that's what fascinated me about these stories. They were so human in the sense that they were so complex. And to me, they really read like some sort of spy thriller with so many different twists and turns. I have been encouraged to write fiction and also someone said, make a movie of it. I I was thinking the same, yes. (laughs) So uh, we'll take a short pause here and then we'll take a look at uh, a couple of these stories on the podcast. The case I wanted to start out with is the Pordoi household, which was an unusual Basque household in uh, this region. So to start out talking about this case, could you just tell us a little bit about who were these different people that lived in this particular household? This uh, case is one that really stands out as an example of how things go awry under foreign occupation. As I said at the beginning of our of our interview, uh, rural Basque values emphasize trust, uh, mutual cooperation, helping each other uh, in, a, in a Basque household. And this particular household was one in which the heiress was married a Basque man who uh, asked to bring his father and mother into the house. And the father was very quarrelsome. Uh, and in many ways, he went against all the rules of rural Basque culture. He was uh, opportunistic. He was selfish rather than thinking about the good of the household. He was ill-tempered, always quick to argue, which is an anathema in in rural Basque society. Mm. So the hard guy to get along with. Um, And on top of it, uh, when the Germans arrived, he befriended two German officers uh, and was in fact quite pro-German. He he subscribed to a German uh, glossy magazine called Signal, uh, he he supported some fascist and pro-Nazi um, organizations, and was quite open in his uh, his pro-Nazi attitude. By contrast, his daughter-in-law was uh, very much in favor of the organized resistance. Uh, her husband, this man's son, uh, was a shepherd, and he knew the Pyrenees really well. And he, in fact, then became 
a clandestine guide to help Jews, Allied pilots, and evaders of obligatory work service in Germany cross the Pyrenees into Spain. And the heiress also then displayed her her support for the resistance by taking in her cousin, who had been called up for work service in Germany. So she hid him on the farm, hid him in plain daylight. Yeah. So under the same roof, one had a pro-Nazi grandfather, a, a woman and her husband who were both um, in their own way, aiding and abetting the resistance. And they had a, a young child who hated the grandfather. So there was a lot of animosity in the household, a lot of, um, a lot of tension. Um, and it was complicated further by the fact that the, the heiress's husband uh, then became an informer for the, the Germans. And so he was playing a double game uh, by he helping people get over, try to seek safety in Spain. Mm -hmm. And he also he got paid by them, and he also got paid by the, the Nazis to uh, give information about them. And they, of course, would inevitably be uh, captured and deported and sent to a camp. Right. So it was a very pretty complicated uh, household. I've never, I've never come across another one like it, and it it became more complicated when the grandfather, the elder man, uh, started bringing Nazi officers home on Fridays in particular to eat. And we might get on the subject of commensality, as I call it, the act of eating and drinking together. Yeah, because it's something us anthropologists look for in in documents, uh, and, and certainly in in rural Basque culture, the act of eating and drinking together is one. Uh, that creates solidarity in it. In local Basque culture, inviting someone to your table, inviting someone inside your house is crossing a very important threshold and to invite the enemy. It wasn't even his house. He was there thanks to the good graces of his daughter-in-law, mm -hmm. but he would invite these Nazis in, make her feed them lunch, and he would deal in the black market, giving, selling them eggs and, and cheese and other things. Um, so it was a very unusual household, very dangerous one. And the, the cousin who was the uh, who was hiding there from uh, trying to avoid conscription in Germany, he was on the farm, and inevitably the story unravel unraveled that someone denounced that young cousin who was avoiding the draft in Germany, and the heiress, and they were both deported and both died. Um, wow. So it, it, that is the the main part of the story, and who did it? Because there was also a spinster aunt in the household who hated the grandfather, the older man who was pro-Nazi. Pro mm -hmm. So you just see this interweaving of, of ill-feeling and, and, and horrible vengeance. And the finger, of course, got pointed at uh, the elder man for having denounced his daughter-in-law because he coveted her property. He had no property of his own, and he very much wanted to inherit her quite uh, substantial estate. But the day after she was arrested and sent away, he went straight into town and, and asked the local notary if, he, if there could be a way in which the property could be assigned to him, which again went against Basque rules of inheritance because the property all went to her son in her death. Um, and part of the story, too, she had lost her husband, who was a double-crosser. He, he died mysteriously in a, snow, in a snowstorm in the Pyrenees. So who knows? Who got him? <laughs> but he met he met a nasty fate as well. Yeah, which is why it, it the whole thing kind of sounds like some sort of complicated spy novel to me. But the complexity of this family, with some sides of it supporting the resistance, 
others the Germans, some people playing both sides, all living in the same house is uh, absolutely extraordinary. But I thought we could talk a little bit more about how this insane story uh, connects with some of what you've been talking about, about these Basque values, and in particular, the um, importance of property, because you mentioned that the father-in-law is not actually in control of this property, but it, of course, we don't know but uh, for sure, but it appears he may have actually betrayed his own family members in order to, uh, in order to gain that property. So how does that play into the, the traditional values of property for Basque society? He, he certainly broke, he broke all the rules. And the other thing that's hard to understand is why his daughter-in-law let him stay there. Because mm-hmm. normally, in, in that, particularly in that, in that period of, of history, the owner of a house, the owner of the, if you own the house, you own the whole property. And it can only be passed to one of your children. It pa- it's not divided up as it would be under French law. Um, under Basque law, it's, it's, it's passed down intact from generation to generation. And she had every right. She was head of household. She had every right to say no to her husband. Your, fa- your father and mother cannot come here. And she could have kicked them out once they started misbehaving. And we don't know much about the, the father-in-law's uh, wife, but he himself was, un- he behaved so badly, it's amazing she didn't kick him out. And especially when she knew he was pro-German. So it's really, it's hard to, it's hard to understand motives. And of course, one can't ask the players why they did what they did, and that's those are the silences in these dossiers. And I know you've worked in dossiers, and you know, um, even when you have a wonderfully thick one with all kinds of information and primary sources, there's still gaps and silences. Um, so this it really is an extraordinary example of strife in a culture that really didn't tolerate domestic strife like that. And it's also so unusual to find one in which there were so many divisions in their ideological commitments. Families often, and members of a household often, differed. You could have a, a member of a family who was pro-Pétain, pro-Vichy, and then another member of this, under the same roof who favored the resistance. That happened. But to the extent of this complicated mess, it's really, it really is extraordinary. And as I mentioned in, in that particular chapter, a few summers ago, I went to the cemetery of this little village, and it's a very small face-to-face community. Right. I went to the graveyard because every Basque house in that part of the Basque country, uh, every house has a name, and it has a its own gravestone in the cemetery with the house name on it. So I wanted to see who was buried in the, the, the gravestone of, of the house Pordoy. And not unsurprisingly, the elderly aunt was there. She was buried there. There was a picture of the heiress who was who had deported and and died in in one of the German camps, her photograph was there and a memorial to her and her son who had inherited the property, had he was buried there as well. But there's no mention. I combed the cemetery and there was no mention of the father-in-law or or um, any of the other members of that of that family. So I don't know what became of him. And you know the trial dossier is not a very thick one. And as I mentioned to you. It is as messy in terms of its physical condition as the lives of these people. It's torn. People have written all over it in crayon because no one can figure out what was going on in that <laughs> household and how. And they let him go in the end. We don't know exactly what happened, but I, you know, sometimes you think the judiciary got tired of 
just the drama and the the intrigue and he of course blamed the 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 spinster aunt he said oh she denounced my daughter-in-law and her cousin but in the end he he went free and who knows where he went i also thought it was interesting how you mentioned that the father-in-law would bring in these germans into the household and um it seems to be kind of capturing these basque ideas of hospitality and conviviality that you mentioned but you said also violating them at the uh, at the same time so so how how does how is he doing both at the same time he he uh he got away with an awful lot. Uh-huh. Um, as I said, his daughter-in-law, as the heiress and head of household, had every right to refuse entry. But it's really difficult. If you think about it, how do you refuse entry to two Nazi soldiers right. who are armed and they are the they are the occupiers and they've befriended your father-in-law and you're hiding uh, an evader of, of, of work service in Germany and your husband is helping people escape Nazi and Vichy violence. Mm-hmm. So what choices do you make? And I always say to my students, you can't judge these individuals. A, we don't know enough, but it's not our right, it's not our place to judge them because in, in time of war, as in time of post-liberation, um, people make extraordinary choices. And it's important to remember that, that in maybe maybe the, the heiress, the head of household, felt that it was most important to protect her, her young son and her, her cousin and whether she knew her husband was a double crosser and a double agent, I, one doesn't know, but it's hard to imagine she didn't know. Yeah. And the German officers who visited, whom the, the father-in-law had befriended, uh, were, often did that. They drove around the countryside and they established relationships with some farmers for the black market. And one, one has to remember that things were not black and white. Yes, they were the, the, the occupying force, but they, they were also there for long periods of time. And some people made money off them. Sometimes they made friendships. That was very rare. This is certainly an exceptional case. Most of my the Basques I know who had endured this period, uh, they would never dream of inviting a German into their house. And sometimes, you know, the way that a German got in a house was by just coming in. Yeah. But um, that was it was very it was very uncommon to be invited to a table like that. And I think when you know one wonders if the father-in-law was simply trying to exercise his power, acting as if he were head of household, he wasn't. But in such extraordinary times, you know, maybe you're just self-protection uh, and protection of those you love is paramount, and you you do things you otherwise wouldn't accept or tolerate. Right, and and I think also the story of the young man who is helping people to cross the border, this seemingly seemingly kind of brave and and selfless act, but then also denouncing people. It, it seems kind of shocking, but maybe when we think about that context and the extraordinary times people were were living, perhaps that kind of playing of both sides or just trying to survive in some way actually wasn't that uncommon. No, I think that's important to remember, and I also would add that that the shepherds who played a double game like that were very, very rare. We don't know exactly how many clandestine guides they were. They were they were Basque shepherds who knew Basques on the Spanish side. You know, they had their they had their trans long-standing Trans-Pyrenean networks going, mm-hmm. which aided the refugees. They were the fugitives. They were helping, but their what work we has been done on, on these clandestine guides. That we, there probably were maybe 200 of them who regularly made passages, and 11 of them, uh, we reckon, were we call them bad clandestine guides. 
and 11 of them were uh, struck from the record of, of, there's a roll of honor for these guides, and 11 of them were struck from the record. And that's for the whole, Pyre the whole Basque Pyrenees, which isn't many, but yeah. people, know who, people knew who they were, and I knew one of them. There were stories that I heard about him. Of course, people were not, are not proud of those stories. Right. And he, he, lived in, he lived in his village you know, to the end of his life, and uh, nobody was very keen to talk about his particular story, and I've not written about it. But, you know, they were, they were very much the exception to the rule. Well, cer certainly the story of the Pordoy uh, household is an exceptional one, but I think that one that reveals a lot of the tensions of, of trying to um, survive in, in those times. So we'll take another pause and then we'll take a, a look at another case of, of another devil agent, even more explicitly so, that I think also reveals some of these dynamics. Another fascinating and almost, in a dark way, adventurous case that, that's in your book is that of Jean Labarde, uh, another Basque operating in this region. So could you tell us a little bit about the uh, background of this kind of character in your book? Well, this, this particular character was born in, in, on the Basque coast and then uh, grew up near Po, which is the capital of, of the adja province adjacent to the Basque country in Bern. He joined the, the French Air Force and, and served in the Moroccan campaign in the interwar years uh, and was very, uh, very much dec a decorated pilot. Um, and when he came back to the Basque country and was based in Po, he got involved in um, one of the largest intelligence, French intelligence groups called Alliance. And they were, they gathered uh, military intelligence uh, about the Germans, and there were over 2,000 operatives in, in France itself in alliance, and he was one of them. And they, they, they called it the Noah's Ark because each agent uh, was given the name of, a, of an animal or bird, and this particular agent was known as the bear. He was, uh, there's a photograph of him in the, in the dossier, and he was very dashing, very handsome Basque man, and he had, was in his uniform. He obviously was a bit of a bon vivant, but he has his dark side. Uh, and in the dossier, one finds out by reading carefully, pages after page after page, he began his career during the war in the Bordeaux region, outside the Basque Country, and he was in the German intelligence and security service called the SD. And one of his tasks was to uh, oversee and organize the roundup of Jews from the Bordeaux region. Uh, he worked very closely with uh, prominent members, fascist members of the Vichy police. And uh, from there, he, he was transferred to Po, where he headed the, the German Intelligence Security Service, which was, one doesn't hear about them as much as you do the SS or the Gestapo, but they were as, as violent as the Gestapo, if not worse. Mm -hmm. Laborde, Laborde was posted to the Bordeaux area uh, as an agent for alliance. And while he was collecting information about German submarines in, on, near, on the coast uh, near Bordeaux, he came across the German head of uh, intelligence uh, and, and uh, the security police, whose name was Doberschutz. And the two of them 
immediately became friends. And then Doberschutz was transferred to head the German security and, and intelligence operation in Poe, and it happened that this Basque agent, Laborde, was transferred as well. So the two of them ended up in the same place at the same time, and having met elsewhere, of course, in a new location, they became friendly, and they, their relationship deepened as they, as they had increasingly uh, sociable contact. And Laborde was tasked as a member of Alliance with getting intelligence about the Germans in Poe. And so he was spying on Doberschutz and his operation. And uh, in due course, he began to play a double game, supposedly under the orders of his superiors in Alliance, who said in order to get close to the SD, get, get close to these Germans, you really have to wine and dine them. So he right. says, my instructions from above were to get close. And that wasn't difficult for him. They'd already met. They'd already done some eating and drinking together. And they both liked sex. They liked, they were both um, womanizers. They drank a lot. And so the Basque double agent got himself in rather uh, a lot of trouble because how do, you, how do you work as a double agent? How do you convince a Nazi officer who is very anti-communist and very anti-Jewish, which he, Laborde himself, was viciously anti-communist. So they have some things in common. Laborde was, his job as an agent was to gather information about the Germans, but then he had to give something in return. Because how do you have that close relationship without give and take? Right. So what kind of, you know, how do you be cagey enough to give a little bit of information without denouncing someone? And, of course, the Germans were, wanted information about resistant, resistance groups. Who was the head of the resistance in, in Poe? And they had their eye on one communist resistor of Spanish origin. Mm -hmm. His name was Rodriguez. So Laborde was playing a very dangerous game. Why? What, what motivates someone to do that? And some other studies of, of, of espionage, both in Spain and uh, in, in wartime France, the kind of guy it attracted, at least from the, the men it attracted, they were out for adventure. They often, they liked to carouse, and they certainly thrived on the intrigue in which they found themselves. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a highly dangerous occupation. But Laborde clearly had a good time. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, some of the dossiers, the witnesses um, uh, for the prosecution when he went to trial, they, they were typically either the interpreters of the German Nazi officers or they were German officers themselves who were multilingual. And a handful of these Nazis come up in the trial dossiers as being regular witnesses for the prosecution. Because who, after all, would know better who helped the Germans than, than those guys? Yeah. Because they understood they were multilingual. They knew these guys firsthand. And it was indeed Doberschutz's um, translator, who was Swiss, who really nailed... <laughs> Jean Laborde in the end because he could he could t tell the court what what he was up to. It's still ambiguous. It's not really you know. It's, he he certainly Laborde certainly did give enough intelligence to the Germans to keep it sweet. But he certainly had a hand in in both courts. He certainly he informed for both sides. Mm -hmm. And the you know the intrigue of this case it was is it's extensive. It's very complicated. The, one of the principal victims of his denunciation was the head of one of the, communi the communist resistance movements in Poe, the man of Spanish origin. And he was determined to bring this double agent to, to justice. And they couldn't find Laborde uh, in, during the post-liberation period. They had trouble finding him, and they found him in the Paris apartment of the woman who ran 
alliance, the the spy network of, of which he was a member. Uh, but he's not mentioned in her memoir. It's funny. Mm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she has an 800-page memoir, and he she leaves him out. Wow. Um, but he, you know, some of the the themes of uh, that I that I found in these dossiers that how I'm interested in Franco-German, Spanish. Basque relations, because there are a lot of Spanish people in that part of southwestern France, too. And as you can imagine, the politics of it was extremely complicated after the war when communists had a lot of power. This is why this the, the man who, who says he was denounced by this double agent was so eager for vengeance against him. Uh-huh. And one can understand. Yeah. So did the, the uh, French court buy that argument and, and find that he really aided the Nazis perhaps more than he actually aided the resistance? Well, the, the court, it was a very long and drawn-out court case. And Jean Laborde kept saying, I was under orders to do this. I you know, was doing my duty for my country uh, in order to get close to the Germans. Of course, I had to wine and dine him. Mm-hmm. And he didn't try to defend himself in his post-marital affairs. But he, he said he was under orders. And the judge and jury didn't, uh, didn't buy it. Uh, and at the time, the communists played a very prominent role in Poe, and this resistor who had been denounced by him, the communist resistor, has certainly had a, a great voice, and uh, he testified against the, the double agent. Jean Laborde ended up being uh, sentenced to 20 years with hard labor and what they call national degradation, which is the, the withdrawal of all civil rights for a 20-year period. And it, you know, over time, by 1948, it was reduced to 10 years. And then finally, a few years later, they bring in another German prisoner of war to testify what he did. So the case doesn't end in a way because he's trying to get pardon, he's trying to get amnesty, trying to get his sentence reduced. And they keep bringing in German prisoners of war to say, you know, what did this guy really do? And in the end, it came down to as late as 19, 1957, I think. He was uh, pardoned, but he also ended up a decorated officer in the French Air Force again. Is that right? On an anti-communist mission. <laughs> so, yeah, that's kind of a classic Cold War story, the and way it shifts. Absolutely. And I can't, I haven't been able to find out, you know, where he ended up. I, again, I, I, I tour cemeteries seeing if he ended up back in his natal Basque village where he came from. Mm-hmm. And I find no trace of him. But he was, uh, it was, it was a complicated episode. Uh, and, yeah. and a very extraordinary one. Full of, full of sex and intrigue, that's for sure. <laughs> right. Is it possible at all to get to what his true motivations really were? Or do you think it really was a mix of a, a genuine desire to um, aid the resistance on the one hand and a love of danger and, and adventure and this kind of bon vivant lifestyle all at once? I think a little bit of all of that. Uh-huh. He, he certainly was uh, a committed member of Alliance, which was a very dangerous job, for heaven's sakes. Yeah. Committed to the Alliance, but Alliance was anti-communist, very right-wing anti-communist. And one can, as you read through the, the, the dossier, his relationship with this Nazi officer, they had commonality, because mm-hmm. that he was vehemently anti-communist too. So there was a, the guy was an enemy, <laughs> but there was a common ground there. Yeah. And put on top of that, their mutual love of getting up to no good. <laughs> right. Um, there was there was a recipe there for them getting along. It was a, it was also the weird aspects to that relationship because they weren't really friends. You wouldn't say that. Uh, they caroused together, 
but sometimes they would withdraw from each other for a bit because don't forget they you know they're both I think they both know what's going on yeah um so there's a there's it's it's uh it's complicated and, and intense in that in that regard as well you know i think all of those things that you mentioned motivated him uh, i don't think you know without saying he's i don't know that he was pro-nazi but he was de- he was doing his job to some extent but also enjoying as much of that job as he could while he was out. right that's my take on it you mentioned that these often wind up being key themes of collaboration, kind of everyday things we might not think of, like food, sex, even gift giving, and again, this idea of conviviality. So why do these things so commonly seem to be important for collaboration? And is there something unique about Laborde being a bass that you think played into this as well? Well, that, that's interesting, because I, as I said earlier, uh, hosp- hospitality is a feature of rural Basque society, even today. I mean, if you go to a Basque farmhouse, if you're invited in, that's huge. And if you're invited in, you are immediately fed. You're given wine and cheese and bread. You're invited to stay for lunch, which could last three hours. Right. And so it is a huge entree into their private world. Mm-hmm. So in the courts, uh, and particularly probably in that part of France, because there's an emphasis on that kind of the importance of commensality and what hospitality means. Perhaps the judges and the jur- the magistrature and the and the, the jurors took it particularly seriously in evaluating the extent to which and the accused had aided and abetted, abetted the enemy, engaged in intelligence with the enemy, or endangered the lives of French citizens. And that kind of closeness that comes with hospitality. Um, it was regarded as dangerous. It was not. It wasn't enough to send somebody twenty years <laughs> for hard labor in, in in prison, but it was certainly a factor that flipped a switch with co- the court to say, "Hmm, this guy has crossed an important boundary." Yeah. And if you do that, you know, <laughs> that is a, a sign of sociability, of acceptance of the enemy, and uh, enjoying something with the enemy. Right. And that's that's not good. Taken more seriously, and in this case, the focus was less, in this particular case, less on the conviviality. That was damned. But it was the fact that he was, uh, he John Laborde was accused of denouncing a number of people who, who did get deported and some of whom died. So mm-hmm. denunciation and deportation was the more serious act of intelligence with the enemy and endangering uh, local lives, but it didn't help him that he was a party goer yeah. with the enemy. <laughs> yeah, so he had a a very careful line to walk, getting close to the enemy, but not too close, giving information, but not too much. But it seems like he may have crossed both of those lines to a certain extent. Indeed. Taking these stories together, just to kind of conclude here, could you summarize how your research reveals something new to us about what our typical ideas might be about collaboration with the Nazis, or how it changes that. Sure. Um, I think that I'm able to provide a new lens through which to understand the relationships people had among themselves in these small Basque and French communities, and the relationships with the the Germans, uh, not all of whom were Nazis, but most were, in their midst. And no one else really writes about that much about the Germans or the other the, the people at local level. So I'm very much interested in, as an anthropologist, in the experience of everyday life. And in order to to create that portrait, I think I bring my my skills as an anthropologist into this task, of not just having a a history that is from the bottom down. This is from the bottom up, 
And that's why the first part of the book provides the context for that. Mm-hmm. And I'm the first person, as far as I know, to use trial dossiers as a, uh, and take an ethnographic approach to them by finding these stories. And it, it's it's painstaking work Yeah, <laughs> trying to follow the threads, find out. And I've read over 300 of these dossiers. And again, that's maybe that's not unusual, but I've read with a certain eye that I, I don't think anybody else has tried before. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the book, I encourage other historians to learn from anthropology and try to read trial dossiers in whatever period of history, French, Spanish, or German, history they're, they're, they're studying. If you take that ethnographic eye, I think you, you find out more about what life might have been like for these individuals, the choices they made, the hard choices they had, and the mistakes they made, because a lot of them made some pretty amazing mistakes, yeah. for which we can't criticize them. But uh, I, I think that, that, that these stories reveal that very human side to what we find in archives. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's something that your book really brings out, is kind of a you know, very detailed work to get at what exactly was the human experience of trying to deal with this uh, this occupation? So thank you so much for coming on the on the program. I think this has been a fascinating uh, in-depth look at these relationships with Germans, and of course there are many more um, incredible stories to read about in your book as well. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter, so that you can be notified of new episodes.